Hi, my name is Josh Chambers, and welcome to How Humans Change. Every episode, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. In this episode, I spoke with Kyle Steed. Kyle went from Air Force to web design to large-scale installation design and fine art. My conversation with Kyle ran the gamut from faith to work to creative work, Air Force, and a number of other things. We talked about uh, growing up with a faith container that evolves as you become an adult that may no longer be useful to you and, and how to leave and find new pastors without being disparaging perhaps and to find value in the old. Uh, Kyle is heavily influenced by Richard Rohr. We uh, discussed being a creative professional and how to calm the mental chatter that can be quite self-judgmental, uh, to let go of control and to manage clients and to work with them in a way that is honoring to yourself and hopefully honoring to them and the project. Uh, and we talked about growing up and taking responsibility. Um, Kyle's got two young kids and a whole bunch of other stuff. And if you're new to the show, please subscribe. And if you've been with us for a while and you haven't yet rated the show, please do so. And uh, visit howhumanschange.com and click contact if you know somebody who would be good for the show. Enjoy this conversation with Kyle Steed. Kyle? Yo. Hey, man. What's up? I'm just you... closing everything out. It's Thank right. you so much. I'm sorry about the delay. That's I know a... time is precious. That's totally fine. Uh, can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. I, uh, <laughs> I'm one of those nerds that keeps all my boxes of phones and shit that I've bought in the past. <laughs> so this is no like a legit pair of three and a half mil headphones That's awesome. that I've never opened yet. That's great. Um, well, speaking of being a nerd, I just took, I have to send you this. I'm going to Skype it to you because Skype, I just took the screenshot. This is amazing. Uh, this is Skype's automatic uh, algorithms. Like it provides auto responses now. Look what it told me to send you. You said, okay, getting QuickTime open and running. The three responses are, is it open? Get me some. And that's, that's my girl. <laughs> what the hell? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's get me some. Girl. That's my yeah. girl is the weirdest one. Is that like supposed to be like, is that something I'd say to my daughter? Like, yeah, that's my girl. I don't know. I, all I could think of was a group of like, sweaty dudes that are like yeah. hey hey let's do that's my girl that's the right idea oh well anyways i guess yeah like qd like qt i don't know oh right right because you did quick time with qt yeah well so that's good to know <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask you too are those there's two pieces i can see behind you right now are those yours yeah those i just got framed oh nice i'm waiting I'm uh, working at having a show in January, so okay. I think these pieces might go there. Okay. Well, so. I'll I'll give um, you had told me in bullet form, which I appreciated some of the changes you went through. You went from Air Force. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but Air Force, living in Japan, 
you came back, you started working in web design, you decided you wanted to start drawing more and, and uh, honed your craft on drawing. And then you eventually went into fine art and do uh, fine art now, paintings, etc. And if I'm not mistaken, you're doing large, you said you do large scale public art for clients. Um, so quite the, quite the journey. There's um, one, of my, uh, one of my bucket list people that I'd love to talk to is, um, oh my gosh, I'm, in a, I'm totally in a space on his name now, but um, I think it's Adam Driver, Kylo Ren. Um, from, oh yeah. He was, he was in the military. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and I just think I'm just fascinated by that type of change. Mm. So I was really, once I found out you were air force and, and, um, it seems like a lot of ex-military people that I know, they stay in a similar vein. Um, and most of us do when you start a career earlier, you sort of never depart too much, but you went from military to fine art, which in, in, the I think in the public eye would be couldn't be considered more different. I'm sure you ha- <laughs> yeah, I'm they're... sure you have some thoughts about whether or not that's true, but that seems like such a dramatic shift over the years. Yeah, on paper they're two polar opposite ends of the spectrum for what one person would align themselves with. I think uh, I think I've always had it in me to be an artist. It's funny, my mom uh, before she moved to Florida was just getting rid of shit in her house. And so I would just random packages would show up at my door and I'd be like, what is this? And it'd be old photographs or old school pictures. And one of them she sent me, I was five. So I don't know if I was in kindergarten or first grade, but I had this, uh, had this whole booklet of, you know, like my youngest is in pre-K uh, or my oldest is in pre-K. So they, the teachers, they do these art projects with kids. Well, on one of the first pages, it was a questionnaire and, and they ask the standard kid questions. And one of the first questions was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had written in my little five-year-old handwriting an artist. That's amazing. And, uh, so it's kind of surreal to, to get that and, and look at that I bet. now, 30 plus years later. Did you remember that was a, an interest or did that did. lay dormant for a while? No, up and through graduate, right? Uh, my junior year, right before I graduated high school, architecture was kind of my main focus, hmm. but I always have gravitated towards creating and, and making and using my hands. Um, well, you said a second ago that going back to the, the, the long-term arc of your career in particular that on paper uh art and military are different are they actually different was it a is it a dramatically different experience or do you see commonalities in what you were doing well so one thought i had is that and i was kind of going back for a second um what i gained coming from the military was a structure that in and of itself is, I mean, I think military is structure. It is regimented. It is a uh, routine to a T like almost to a fault, right? Like mm-hmm. everything, there's no real wavering. There's no quote unquote creative way of approaching, uh, things, everything's standardized, everything is tested and approved. And, you know, there's so many channels you have to go through if you want to kind of implement any sort of change. So there's no like thinking on the fly, but 
so I've gained before then I didn't have that in, in my life and how to take the, everything that was in me and, and apply it practically and give it some like, I, I guess constraints almost, um, mm, some scaffolding. Or even just, yeah, some scaffolding or maybe even just, uh, maybe not just in physical space, but internally, um, yeah. to give myself the confidence and the structure and how to, and now, I mean, I've been working for myself going on six, seven years and, uh, but coming out, I left in the in, uh, middle of 2007. And at that time I knew, I felt very strongly there was nothing they could have said or done to persuade me to stay in. Mm. And, uh, it was, a, it was ever, only ever a stepping stone to get to some, someplace else. And that's why I kind of still think of them as almost polar opposites because it was never a, there's nothing never handed down in my family about military pride. Um, there's never any discussions growing up about one day I'll, you would grow up and join the military and serve mm. your country proudly. Like those were never the conversations that, that went on in my house. Like my dad was, my grandfather on my mom's side was in world war two, but that's a, that's a pretty more, that's like a more common story. I think at, um, and our grandparents' generation. Uh, the story going, of your your family was in the military. You should go in the military. Well, no, I think it was a more common theme for men of age in the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. You you would be more prone, I'm I'm sure, to uh, to run into someone who had served. And then I think through the baby boomers, there was a. Um, and even on past that, there's been a slow descent, I think, of of it becoming more of a common theme in people's life. Like, as yeah. that's gone down, the more people going to college uh, has, has greatly increased. So that seems to be like the pretty standard thing. You come out of high school and you get a bunch of student loan debt and you go spend four or six years at a university, right? Mm -hmm. So you said it wasn't... Um... In your family, so sticking with that first big decision out of high school, it was in your family, and you were thinking of it as a stepping stone. What, had it been some, something you'd been thinking about for a while? What motivated you to do it? <laughs> motivated isn't the right word I would use. Uh, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was more like I was just a... <sighs> I hate to use the word slacker, and I guess it kind of, it's kind of fitting now, though. Mm -hmm. uh, but no real drive or ambition to get up from under the, the roof of my parents and get on my own two feet. So my dad just kind of, I don't know, gently set me down and said, look, you're not going to live rent free. You're not going to just hang out here forever. So you have two options, basically. Go get a full-time job, which A... That meant at that time working retail or some something that was definitely of no interest to me or can go look uh, and talk to a recruiter. Wow. Um, and truth be told, my brother had been in, but it, I don't, I'd be interested to hear his story too. He had been in for a few years. And so I called him one evening and 
asked him questions. He basically laid it out for me as if, you know, it's like any other job. They give you a uniform. You just show up to work and you do what they tell you to do. I see. Uh, there's a lot more subtlety to it than that that I learned. Mm. Um, as in, like, you just can't leave. You can't put in your two weeks notice. It's nothing like the private sector. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it really came out of the blue. Fucking honestly, I... It's like I was going along, coasting along fine, what I assumed was fine. And then this, uh, you know, this thing just gets thrown in the mix. And I'm like, oh, shit, am I really going to do this? Uh, And you did it. And I did it. I didn't know really what I was doing, (laughs) nor did I know what would, what lied ahead of me. Um, And it was three years, three years in? Three in Japan, four total. Okay. Three of the, yeah, Japan. Uh, was another thing once <clears throat> so kind of once you get in the system and you start going you go to your uh the basic training which air force is down in san antonio mm-hmm. and i went it was so hot it was the end of august god it was so hot <laughs> and surviving every day based on when you ate so you woke up dark ass early and you had to they ran you and did all the, the workout routines, then you ate breakfast. Then you sit in these boring ass like classrooms and they just indoctrinate you by for your country, for the military ranking system and all this shit you have to memorize and get tested on. Did you and, did you find yourself caring and or changing your belief system as time went no, on? Not at all. No. You were impervious to, me, to it. Just, yeah, it was just a complete front. It was just a complete like, okay, like, what do I have to know to get by? And none of it's, I th- oh, I was 21 by the time I went in. Okay. So I had already formed a little bit of, of um, I guess I wasn't so formidable. I wasn't looking for them to like change my beliefs. I see. Um, okay, so you, so you do your boot camp, you do your, your basic training. You mm-hmm. and then you get deployed to Japan, and then three years in Japan. You said that was really transformative. What what happens in Japan that's so transformative? What happens in Japan? What doesn't happen in Japan? Uh, <laughs> I, <get> <laughs> I have. Uh, hey, hey! Side note: When you're talking, yes. hold your yes. head. Yes, your illustrious beard is crinkling your headphones. Mm. So grab the mic and oh, keep it away from your beard. Okay, so. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, very illustrious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a major heartbreak experience while I was in Japan dating this girl that didn't last very long. Huh. And this... Um, a Japanese woman? No, I wish. that That would have been more interesting. She was air force as well and which after that ended completely solidified my beliefs not to um not to get involved with another person in the military uh (laughs) (laughs) um yeah we wanted two totally different things out of that relationship and i was like i was really hungry to find someone that was serious and i I think she was just looking to have fun okay but yeah i mean that relationship was really weird at the time. I mean, I've at this December, I'll be married 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, feels like a, a different lifetime ago. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, even 
my first experience stepping off the plane in Japan, there's almost this, um, this sensation and, and there was this sensation in my body that told me this is different. This isn't home. Um, of course you see the sky and you see trees and, and you see things that you recognize, but there's also just this completely different feeling about it. Um, and I think one of the, go ahead. No, just one of the overarching, um, things I took away from, from that time was internalizing what it really feels like to be an outsider and to be a foreigner and to have a barrier. Um, I wouldn't say that I really experienced any sort of mistreatment or, um, you know, nothing that was abrasive to me, mm-hmm. but I, th- I think there's that sensation if you're attuned to it, that, that lets you know, like, this isn't your home. Um, and I never felt that before. It was always, I mean, anywhere you go in the, if, within the U S you, you just have a sense of ownership. You have a sense of home. And yeah. I, uh, you can navigate for, things no matter where you are, more or less. It's, it's uh, right. somewhat familiar. And the, the, this experience you were having, did you find yourself, um, that seems like a very open-minded way of, of looking at it. Uh, sometimes when we leave the country for the first time, we can also feel really judgmental about the place that we're visiting and do the compare and contrast. Were you thinking and going through that? Or, you, or were you uh, pretty open and receptive to the fact that this just was different and not your home, but not better or worse. Hmm. It's tough to say. I, I think there were a lot of ways I, I maybe made judgments, whether at a subconscious level or not, that I just knowing myself then compared to where I'm at now, mm-hmm. I would love to go back now. I think there were things about me um, spiritually that, were shut off from certain experiences and opening myself up to embracing more of, of, of the culture. But yeah, I think overall I wanted to, I wanted to learn. I, I wanted to get out and I didn't just want to close myself off. Right. Like I didn't yeah. want to just live within the confines of the safety net of the military there. And so I, I chose to live off of the base and be more within the culture and would take Whoa. day That's, trips. That seems so different from the kid who didn't want to leave his parents' house. What happened? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a short period of time to go from, I I'm cool with my parents to then saying, I don't want to live on base. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess because within a short amount of time, it forces you to really look, look at yourself and become more self, uh, reliant. And what I had learned in a year already gave me more, um, courage and more self-worth, I guess, more, um, confidence in myself to, to, to look at challenges, not as in a frightening way but to kind of embrace them and, and think like, well, I don't really know. I've never done this before, but I know I could try it and see what happens. Huh. Uh, Did you always have that yeah. adventurous side to you as a kid too? 
with the others, I felt safer growing up when I could be within groups. I had a harder time traversing off on my own and making my own kind of adventures up. And so that's kind of been a, a journey for me as well within my work. Um, but as me, just as an individual becoming comfortable, um, wow. Like even in simple things like taking myself to the movie or <laughs> going to yeah. going to grab a bite by myself and not feeling that like releasing that tension or that awkwardness that somehow if you're alone then you're a, a lesser version of right. yourself. Right. Yeah. It's, so was this was this step off base a big moment of declaring that you had the self confidence to <laughs> go do something on your own? um i'd say after the that um heartbreak occurred yeah because we we were going to get this house together this girl i was dating and then it's the day that we moved in is the day that it all fell apart and uh so it all like it was that's kind of funny i've never connected those dots before but it really was what dots are you connecting sorry well, just the fact that I was stepping out again under the safety net, under the premise that I was doing this together with this girl, oh. and then it actually turned out that it just became my house and I lived there alone. Oh. So I, I suffered through that initially, like great despair and some like seriously dark times, but it was all preparing. I can see that better now that. That's oh, what interesting. Happened. Did you at mm-hmm. least have some Japanese emo music to listen to at the time? <laughs> <laughs> All the emo music. Yeah, man, that was the age of uh, MySpace. Right. That was, I mean, that was the era. And for every, every young man who had a broken heart in the uh-huh. early 2000s, thank God for okay. emo. Yeah. Okay, you mentioned something too about um, not being as spiritually open, which I guess infers that you are different now than you were then spiritually but talk to me about that and you can jump over your jump around your timeline if you want but i'd love to hear more about that the whole thing or the whole the whole <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah we can jump around and i, I want to hear more about the transition the other transitions too but that really struck me as such a big statement that's so weighty i'd love to hear what that what was behind that yeah i guess now when i think about myself um i've been thinking about this a lot this last year of being in evolution and being as i think we all are and talking about myself more specifically i am continuing to evolve and so the place i'm at now comparative to me 13 14 years ago has made um thankfully has, has made some some steps towards um, opening myself up and not being so quick to make judgments um, against what so it's like I, I grew up and, and was handed these these beliefs you know I, I grew up in North Alabama my um, grandparents, thankfully instilled within me um uh, it was their form of religion more southern baptist but Mm -hmm. um you know a certain quote-unquote fear of god but a um 
an understanding, a, a, a tradition, I think, a structure, a yeah. container to, to put God within. And I think that's, that's healthy, almost necessary. Um, have you ever read any Richard Rohr? You sound very Richard Rohr oh, right now. Dude. <laughs> yes. The container yeah, is what just... struck me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The first phase, the first box. Um, so the, Southern, uh, Southern Baptist container. Yep. Okay. And, uh, and he, and yeah. And I love how Richard puts that. He's like, you, uh, you can't go from the first to the third box. Uh, you have to go through the deconstruction. And for so much of my life, I spent, and spun my wheels, um, trying to control this, um, this box that I had been given. And I see that now I see that not as there's no good or bad or right or wrong. It was just my mom and my grandparents doing the best they could with what they had. And and they handed that to me. And, uh, but where that kept me was there were certain truths that I internalized and those to me became absolutes. So then that, formed my view of the world mm. in in views of of right and wrong good and bad black and white very dualistic thinking which i think is a very common theme in the west um how we're taught and how we're raised to, mm. to look at the rest of the world um so when i go to, go to japan and you you visit um the temples you visit buddhist temples and you see that their beautiful tradition of thousands of years for me, there are parts that um, that I was afraid of, say, uh, thinking somehow it's going to rub off on me. Yeah, right. Would be, <laughs> you know, uh, influenced or just the silly things that go through your head when you when you try and control something as as big as as who God is and the and the presence that can't be controlled or or contained, but you have this very um, narrow view. I'm glad you used the word fear because I think that doesn't get used very often when we talk about containers and where we talk about our spiritual lives and evolution that I think um, I have to be careful with my words because I don't want to suggest that that if you have strong beliefs that are well contained in a container that that means that you are fearful of other containers. But mm-hmm. um, I think it is true that when you have a really strong set of absolutes that you were given and that, or maybe you, you've grown to believe that different ones don't just look and feel different. They really can look very scary. And, yeah. and it, it almost feels like a disease that if I sure as hell hope I don't catch this disease, I better <laughs> stay away from it. Right? It's so true. It's so true. And you don't, I couldn't have formed these, I couldn't have expressed this sort of, I guess, perception of even of myself then of where I was without coming to where I am now. And so I'm so thankful to have, um, um, you know, what is that saying? When the student's ready, a teacher will emerge, something along those lines. Huh, never heard that. Um, and that's when I was first introduced to reading Richard Rohr. It was, it was a book that he had written when he, he, he spent quite a bit of time, maybe about 10 years studying uh, male initiation rites. And I think it's called Return to Adam. 
but I hated the book. I didn't like it. For me, it was the wrong introduction to his work at the time. And I hate such a strong word. I just didn't resonate with it. It it wasn't where I was at. But when I got a hold of uh, Everything Belongs, that book really started to affect me and and a lot of the ways that I had had, had always thought. Um, what was it about it? Do you remember the the big themes that affected you? Yeah, it's the simple things of of looking beyond the binary of getting out of this dualistic mindset of of opening ourselves up to to the third way of seeing and not to be so judgmental. Um, and just allowing and not having to be afraid that, that these other forms, uh, whether we're speaking of God or of, of something else to exist and that there's really no need to, to feel like we control that. Um, was, did you, did you notice that really taking like a practical, practical is the wrong word. Did, did it show up in your life in a certain way at the time when you read that? Did you, was that like a lens on a specific slice <laughs> of your life? I think so, because I I felt I had been feeling that that my view, not that my like faith was hanging in the balance or or what what have you, but just that what what had served me well wasn't really working. And I didn't know what to do with that. So I think that's why they call this deconstruction, because it is sort of a free fall. And that feels unnerving and so it is an interesting word i've I've (laughs) thought about this before because it suggests that you are uh it it almost feels like a a very western word it suggests that there's a a brick house that has been Mm -hmm. orderly built and that you are now systematically brick by brick wall by wall slowly taking it apart and expanding and analyzing when from what I've heard and experienced, when when people do enter into a a deconstruction of whatever it is, it oftentimes feels more like what you said. You're falling. Yeah, and and it's you kind of it's not something you're causing to happen. It just happens to you. Yeah, and you're looking around, and as you're falling, pieces of your <laughs> of the thing that's being de- deconstructed seem to be falling with you at different speeds some of them go flying by and you're like wait where did that what where did that go why'd that leave (laughs) and then others just kind of hang out and you're like why what's happening it's so true so you went through that and then oh i think i'm still going still going through that um and and what precipitated um what precipitated that and then map that on your timeline for me please Ooh, uh, which I suppose is the other mis- like difficult thing about deconstruction. When does it actually start, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I can <clears throat> I can look back to probably the year the year prior before military, so two thousand two or three. I was sitting in the balcony of this big church, and inside I was like, "Well, this is it." I'm never coming back here. It's my last Sunday sitting in a pew. And I walked out that Sunday and I never went back. What I found though is I got 
I maneuvered into these like home meetings and, and groups of people just meeting in, in houses, you know, home churches or whatever. And they still had their very, um, uh, conservative just approaches. Um, some not so conservative, some like pretty out there, very mm-hmm. hyper spiritual expressions. And, and then <clears throat> all that kind of was like building, building, building military and boom, it's like cut off. And again, it was like this utter free fall experiencing depression, experiencing utter isolation and, and aloneness. Like a, when I look back on it, it almost becomes like my desert experience of mm-hmm. just, just being there in the wilderness. And I, there were certain um, times I tried to go to these churches in Japan that were just, uh, it was, it was like pulling teeth just to sit through it. It mm. was, uh, I would have rather had a, you know, like a root, I've never had a root canal in my life, thankfully, <laughs> but I can imagine it's painful and it was that painful sitting through, um, through a lot of these services, uh, you know, it's it's just like when somebody's trying to keep something alive that has no business living anymore. It's just dead, right. and you're just trying to breathe life in, into it, and it's not working. Well, because what other what other outlet do you have to bring life back to yourself? But but the patterns that you already know. Say that again. What other outlet do you have to bring life back to yourself? But the patterns that you already know. We. Mm-hmm. we it seems pretty understandable that you would, if you're going through depression, if you feel isolated, if you feel alone, that you would reach back yeah, to you places. Would run. That's right. Yeah. You would return to what felt, what was comfortable to you in mm-hmm. hopes of finding the same comfort. But when the comfort isn't there, you know, what do you do with that? Right. It compounds even yeah. then the this isol- feelings of isolation, I, I would expect. Yeah. Yeah, and it did, and um, and I think to jump forward pretty far to now, which is why um, through processes, well, through I think a couple things through therapy, which had never been introduced to my life except for two years ago, um, an amazing tool, and and in my development and evolution as a as a human being and also through um becoming more um making meditation more of a daily practice and sitting um with myself and doing more just silent meditation Mm. Um, those two things have really it's like embracing i've just started reading Brene brown's book rising strong and already like within the first chapter talking about the discomfort being uncomfortable willing to be uncomfortable those things aren't really allowed when you are told that you know you have to be happy or or, um, find joy in all things and there's just like a facade to or there's this deep cover-up of of um of sitting with stuff it's Mm -hmm. it's all about it was something else I've been thinking is it seems like for so long, it was just this message of like, we just have to rise above everything. Like you just have to get over it and like sit, 
you know, almost like this ascension as if like we can just like float up above our lives and, and then everything will be cool. And we can just kind of like, you know, look down upon it and see where we need to move things around and keep them in order when instead learning to sit and, and be in the shit and be in the middle of discomfort and of, of not knowing things. Um, but, and the inadvertent message is if you can't rise above and look down objectively and find joy that you, you must be doing it wrong and Mm. you got to work harder and double down on, (laughs) on that, that it, that it, it sounds like the answer wasn't historically wasn't sit meditate or as Brene Brown says strong front or or uh, soft front strong back, mm-hmm. uh, but it's like the opposite. It's like super strong front, yeah. very weak back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it just breeds more control. You know, you just keep trying to grip that thing and white knuckle it and. I have learned so much more about myself and awareness of where I hold tension in my body. Like so much gets held up above my chest and my Mm -hmm. shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed how little I don't know about myself still. And that is very sobering and sometimes really, almost embarrassing to to admit it sounds really courageous to say actually like how could you not know yourself but we deny ourselves so much for so many other things so many other pursuits that i still feel like i don't like uh one of the things therapy has helped me with is regaining a, a sense of curiosity about myself I've suppressed curiosity in myself for so long because of those absolutes that I just held on to that I would deny myself um, asking questions. And so it's really hard. It's, uh, yeah. but it's, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I'm sitting here. The reason I, I, I burst out laughing is that you're saying you're a little embarrassed. And all I can think of is that's so courageous to, to have, to be able to say that. And to be able to do that work and to maybe provide a, a segue for you, it, was that awakening of curiosity part of how you found your career evolving so dramatically? Uh, yes, I think so. And, and I think it's like a yes and to both. And it's, it came along because of what I'm doing. Oh, I see. And I don't think it it would have happened unless I had been putting in the work. So it's um, it has opened up a lot new path a lot. It has opened up more pathways in my work, mm-hmm. I believe, to to let go of some of the control in my work. Um, but then, man, a lot of this last year has just been that on repeat. It's um. It's like when you find your new favorite song and you just don't want to stop listening to it. So you just hit, you hit the repeat icon yeah, twice. Yeah. It just has the little number one. Yeah. And it just keeps playing over and over. And that it's like letting go and just loosening the control um, has been on repeat for me. But in, it's taken. 
it's taken this time to get there too. Um, I was going to ask, yeah, (laughs) for people who end up listening to this, just so you know, there was this moment on Skype where we're both just staring at each other. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I get lost in my, like, I can't keep up with, with where my thoughts are going or, or even that my words just don't feel sufficient, I guess. They're doing, um, you're doing great for what it, for, for it's worth making sense, at least. I, mm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you feel like your words are matching what you want to say, but it's very clear to me what you're saying. Okay, well, good. S- we can keep going. Okay. <laughs> so the, um, the, uh, the web design thing happens mm-hmm. post-military. Mm-hmm. And... You said then that you started to really try to do more drawing. And that, of course, then leads to fine art. And I, want, I do want to get to that. But on the, in this last thing that you just said of this repeat of control, I was going to ask the control aspect. Is that like, I can't control who sees my work, who likes my work, who buys my work? Or is that the like, I can't control uh, whether or not I can actually paint today? Um, or some other thing or all of the above? Yeah, I don't, mm, that's really good. I definitely, maybe just instinctively, I don't even carry that concern about who sees it or buys it or, or looks at it that, um, I think with control, it's about how much I put into a piece um what is it in me that instinctively says this is done versus because that part of my process where i I start to get really up in my head and analytical is like oh is that line straight enough is that the right color Uh, and i'm making all these judgments about it assuming that i know the right answer uh, when more of the times if i get to a a place now where I don't really understand what's happening in it, I'm beginning to have a greater sense of enjoyment in, in that, and thereby can let that kind of sit and um, and take some time with that mm. instead of having to quickly cover up what I don't understand. I see, and, and bring it to a place that becomes a little a little um, a little too literal, I guess. Uh, mm. that so yeah to back up like so the funny part about <laughs> the web design story is when I got home uh, and my wife and I had just newly been married just over a year her best friend had been in the the web design game for a little bit so met with her we uh, got our apartment and she was like hey why don't you work on a few of these side projects with me and I was like, okay. And so she gave me some books on CSS and HTML. Okay. This is 07. Um, and then she was like, well, what? Do you have like a resume? You should put a resume together. And I was like, I have nothing to put on a resume. And she's like, yeah, sure you do here. And so she gave me this whole list of her jobs. And she was like, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to put this to to my headhunter woman and she'll, she'll put it out there and, and, you know, who knows, maybe you'll get an offer. And I was like, what the hell? I was like, I have no business like going for this job but sure 
Just full Whoa, trust. Whoa, your, your friend helped you basically fake your resume? Oh my gosh. <laughs> full transparency. So it works. And I get in, I get an interview <laughs> for this. Uh, it's a small IT shop. They had a, I mean, they were maybe about 10 to 20 people. And they had a, a small web dev team. Uh, and so as soon as I got the call that they wanted to interview me, then my friend kind of coached me. She was like, okay, like if they ask you these questions, talk about this. So I was like, oh all right. Gosh. And then I went into this interview and um, thankfully it's, I don't even know how it worked out, but having decent people skills and just, you know, back and forth with them and talking pretty openly, but trying to sound as if I knew what I was talking oh about. Oh my gosh. It could, convinced them and oh that's like that so, is the quintessential fake it till you make it story yeah it really did and then i was taking night classes at the time so i was actually in like an intro to web design class at night and i would come into my job in the morning and take what i was just learning and- <laughs> <laughs> guys guess what h1 yeah. tags are important yeah exactly i just exactly. just want everybody to know this so, so were you really courageous and uh or did you just not even think about like what you were actually doing so here's here's where here's when reality hit i i came out had a little bit of leave so i didn't need to find a job right away and we had we had put about a year's worth of savings away so we're we were doing okay and my wife had found a job like within the first week or two that we'd got back to texas I worked at Walgreens for a week in their photo department. I left that job to go to half price books. Not sure how many people are familiar with that. I think it's a bigger chain in Texas, but they're, it's a used bookstore. I have one. Oh, sweet. I have, so, yeah. I have purchased a book at half price books. There you go. So I worked there for about a month and it occurred to me one night while I was straightening, straightening books on a shelf at closing, thinking about my life thinking about what I just walked away from the military in terms of pay and compensation and benefits. And now looking at what they were paying me by the hour. And I was like, it felt almost like I was about to start going backwards as if this wheel had been spinning Mm. in my life. And now it was starting to slow down and I could almost start to see it unravel a bit if I kept this up. So I was like, no way. So yeah, I guess it was a little bit of a, a courageous act to just like, I don't fucking care how it happens, but mm. I'm, I have to get in, I have to get my foot in the door somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so I'm so thankful for my friend Sydney, if she listens to this, uh, thank you, because mm. I really owe much of it to her. And, uh, and she still works, she still does uh, web design work. And She's a good friend to my wife and I, but um, she, yeah, I mean, she totally fudged it for me and helped me fake it and get my foot in the door. And then, <clears throat> to, so to bore all the tiny details over the next five years of working within web design, that's the main theme that started to, and I don't even know it's a theme, whatever. And it started to occur to me that the computer was so lacking in it. Um, mm. It never, it began to just feel less and less 
enjoyable. There is an, a sense of uh, reality to it. I, I was almost just giving up my personal touch in my work just to try and make it look like everyone else's or, uh, and there's ways to, to be expressive within if you're talking about coding and, and those things. But when I started approaching design in a sense of like going straight into the computer versus taking time to sit and draw and reflect and, mm. and conceptualize on paper, uh, I struggled with that and I didn't know why for a long time until I started coming back to my sketchbooks and, and drawing things first. You had been and doing I, that as a kid when you say coming back to it. Yeah. I feel like I'd, um, I mean, I have have journals dating pre military that I still have. So I had been journaling and sketching and things like that for, for a long time. I kept that up through the military even. And okay. I think like, Keeping a journal, sketching, and photography were probably my two biggest outlets okay. that kind of kept me creatively satisfied <laughs> through my uh, my four years. Mm -hmm. um, were you doing predominantly web design, or were you also busting up an illustrator and doing illustrations? Yeah, the first few years were strictly within code, um, teaching myself coding okay. and I didn't, I touched very little within Photoshop and Illustrator. Okay. Yeah. And then when I finally got the courage to, to leave the nine to five and do freelance full time, it became a mixed bag of, okay, well I have this experience now doing front end code. So I'll take some of those jobs. And then I was slowly beginning to develop my hand lettering and illustration style. Okay. So I was, I was building up clients with that work as well. So what happens with the transition from drawing, you start to realize, I assume, like, man, I really like this. This is really something I enjoy. And uh, it, it's, you didn't start doing more drawing classes, it sounds like. Then you decided to start painting and doing, how does, how does one go from sketchbooks to large-scale public art projects? <laughs> that's a... That's a Great question. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it was besides maybe it's this, is it a need to challenge myself? Maybe this, uh, when I do something, I like thinking about what's next and okay, how can, I don't want to do the same thing twice. It's hard to do that. It's hard to feel like I'm, I'm repeating um, I can remember the first opportunity I really got to take my work outside of smaller scale and I got to work, uh, it was in a restaurant. They had a, it's like a big bar mirror along the side of this wall. Okay. And why that was my first chosen project, I don't know because it was incredibly, uh, challenging and intimidating hmm. i thought i'd be able to i had like drawn it all out what i wanted to do but then i was like oh yeah i can project on there and then not having done it before i was like wait this is stupid i can't project on a mirror it's not gonna work <laughs> <laughs> so having to freehand my first time so you were doing a mural of sorts or what as, as, as of sorts yeah it was um it was like white paint markers on top of this okay mirror. okay got yeah. it 
but basically I held my pencil sketch as a reference in my hand and just freehanded this thing. And I was so hard on myself and I was judging myself so bad and just didn't never felt like I did a good job with it. Oh man. But, um, you know, this is a pause. Um, so many creatives that I know and I am very much the same way. Mm hmm. Are, we're we're almost always scared that that someone's going to walk in the room, and that will finally be the person that uncovers us as a fraud. Yeah. No matter how many years you do it, no matter how many you know how many good you get, and and I've heard this, and and I I feel like I've heard this from people, and I myself has have achieved enough success that my resume I should be able to read my resume and say, oh no, I'm actually good at this. Uh. And so I can only imagine that on your first job <laughs> to have something go so wrong where you, you're not just, uh, you're not just doing like sketching against this projection, but you're having to hold piece of paper. I can just imagine what would be going through my head, holding this piece of paper, like, please God, please God, don't anybody walk in and be like, Hey, is that how you do that? Is that really what that's supposed to do? Are, are you sure yeah. you're doing that right? Is that how that looks is wait, did you make that line right? right? Like second guessing yourself for every line that you draw. Yeah. Because what it is, it's the fear of making mistakes. And that plays into the whole control thing. And so if you're afraid of making mistakes, then you try to control it. And then then you just get like trapped in this cycle of, okay, well, the tighter I can control it, the less chances there are I'll make a mistake. When in fact, there's nothing but mistakes to make, mm-hmm. or there's not even such a thing as a mistake to make, as I love Bob Ross would say, there's only happy trees. There's when you're making, when you're painting, there's no such thing as a mistake. Mm. Thank you, Bob Ross. Rest in oh, peace. that's so good. Um, that's so good. Cause, and, cause so many, so many of the times that I sit down to design something, it's yeah. an errant keystroke that results in me finding something that I'm excited about. Yeah. I mean, not all the time, because I want people to know as listening that I'm pretty good at what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but so much is, so much of it is experimentation. And, and I do yes. think to your point about not even using the word mistakes anymore, that it, that, that comes from this paradigm that there's a right and a wrong way to design this or to, to accomplish this. But you start to realize, well, it's just experimenting. A lot of it's just experimentation and that's not right or wrong. It's just, just trying things out and seeing what they, what mm-hmm. they do for you. Mm-hmm. And who really knows how to do it anyways? I think we're all ever learning mm-hmm. and we're all figuring it out. So now you have clients, you're doing, uh, you're doing large scale public. So tell me what those, give me some more examples of what those look like. And then how are you doing now with the control? Um, mm-hmm. Because I would imagine that if you're doing public work that is large, you can't fix it as, as easily as web design for example where it's just adjusting a snippet or changing a little bit of code or that's right replacing an asset so that would be more intense i would imagine yeah there's a more there's a greater sense of permanence um and vulnerability in it when you're done it's you kind of um there's another really beautiful quote that's i think it replies applies to um Maybe it applies to a poem, but it's like 
uh, a piece of work is never really finished. It's only surrendered. So when you can surrender it and you walk away from it, yeah, you, um, you kind of, I kind of now allow myself off the hook that good for you. What, uh, what is done is done and it no longer holds any weight upon my inherent being and upon my inherent value of just who I am. Mm. It's a piece, it's a piece of me. Absolutely. And it is ingrained in every piece I do. That's without question, but allowing it not to, to control me or to tell me who I am, uh, based on if I look at it and I see every little flaw in it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that shift in perspective of just looking at it and, and saying, yeah, there are things in there that those lines definitely aren't straight. And there might be pieces in there that could be fixed, but so what, that's what, that's what gives it some character. And mm-hmm. that's what I like about it. Um, right, what kind of work are you doing now then? Are you doing buildings? Uh, so one of the, Go ahead. Yeah, uh, some of the work last year I worked. Um, it's interesting getting in with with some hospitality spaces too. I worked uh, on an apartment, a new apartment complex build last end of last year, and worked within their uh, fitness room that had this really beautiful two story wall that I got to paint. Oh, neat! Uh, <clears throat> they had this exterior wall as you pull in. Um, through the by the leasing office it goes right into a a parking garage excuse me Mm. and so i got to do that and that was actually a wall it was really fun it was um the piece was really inspired by one of my flights home last year and i was looking down and when you fly over these rural areas there's all the crop circles and Mm -hmm. these patterns that emerge out of the landscape and so I was really touched by that and spent some time drawing different geometric concepts based loosely on all the crop circles and fields. And they loved this idea. So I got to um, do this big piece on this wall. It's blues and yellows, very vibrant coming off the wall. But I can remember even finishing up some of the last touches as I was like standing there, I had to just let myself go. I had to let it go. Like, it was becoming where I wanted to see every little thing I could start to fix. And like mm. I was telling myself like, wow, I could spend another week here just agonizing over the details. And instead it was better for me to just stand back and like, look at it and appreciate it and, and put my name on it. Um, last, just last month I finished working uh, for a, well, it's, yeah, it's a data center, one of Facebook's new data centers that they're building up, uh, just north of town here. And so that was a big mural in one of their hallways. That's cool. What I love, though, Did, did about... you, like, slip anything in there that was, like, subversive? Like, uh, <laughs> like, just, like, like what? I don't know, like a little stop stealing our data, please, kind of, like, little note. <laughs> <laughs> P.S. I'm deleting my account after I do this mural. Yeah. P.S. I never had an account. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, I think there is one that, uh, a few years ago, my, my wife and I were working together. So she created a page for me. I never check it. I, uh, I refuse to go on and and participate in in that. But what I was going to say is 
the way that my approach to a lot of this large scale work has changed um, is freehanding everything now, as opposed to when I projected everything in the beginning. Um, and I think that process had to happen over time because it, I had to have the confidence in myself to do that, to, to take yeah. a smaller drawing and know within myself that I could recreate that um, at a larger scale and make it look. And that's the other thing too. Why mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to to match exactly to the right to the drawing at hand. There there should be room for some interpretation and and room for some improvising on the fly. Um, and so when I work with clients who get that, I really love um, that type of uh, collaboration because some people aren't uh, are not that open. They, yeah. they see a concept and they think it has to look exactly like that. And so I also find a little bit of trying to, um, I don't know, just educate a little bit or, mm -hmm. um, just like do it first and ask forgiveness later sort of yeah. mentality that, that like, if you want to work with any professional, you need to learn to trust them to do their job well. And that gets so muddled when you work when um, people, one, don't really know what they want. And two, when they think they want to work with an artist, yet yeah. they want to try and just control the, the, the process. Mm -hmm. And so what they really didn't want, they didn't want to work with an artist. They just wanted to work with, with someone who could um, make their ideas happen. Which they cannot usually articulate. No, it's it's extremely difficult for them, or yeah. it just comes out ass backwards. And mm -hmm. well, you know, I'm I'm struck. One of the other things that I I think I do, and I think a lot of um, creative people do, is that we we build these. I don't know if a lot of people creative do it or not, I, but we I build these um, these these strange rules, these hard fast rules that I just sort of adopt for myself and my work and mm -hmm. they become almost like slave drivers to me uh and they can come from all sorts of different places they can come from a snippet that i heard in conversation they can come from a book they can come from a quote-unquote expert they can come from a criticism but but that they they get turned into rules that end up really not bringing me any life or not making my work any better uh and i think i'm thinking about that because i i believe that we and i will i i have a hard time sometimes um doing things in the way that works for me because i've told myself that the that the right way or the the most the most expert way of doing it is this other way and and I was struck by that when you were saying that you used to only do projections and now you freehand, which both requires a good deal of self-confidence as an artist to be able to say, I can do this. But also it sounds like letting go of, of a construct that there's one correct way to do this. That's right. And um, that must be really freeing, probably scary too. Yes. Yeah, it can be frightening. Uh, and in the beginning, the first few times I did it was really 
it's like I have to pump myself up just to like get started and do it. But then it's like once I find myself in the middle of doing it, I'm enjoying it a lot more. Mm. The the technical aspect of setting up the projector and getting it connected and getting the aspect ratio right and keystoning and all this shit that's just like yeah required to even get the image semi like and you and you're hoping the perspective is right and you're hoping that you did that you scaled it all accordingly when you when you penciled it in and as opposed to stepping to a space and looking at at what's in front of you and saying okay i'm gonna almost surrendering to the process and like I don't know how this is going to go, but as long as I can just start for me, it's, there's so much confidence that starts to build. It's just like this slow, it's like this steam Mm. engine. Like once you put it in motion, it's going to take a minute and those, that gas is going to come out and that steam and those, you're going to hear it just like cranking. But then once it starts going and that it just gets smoother and faster. And that's, that's just like, as I'm saying it, it's like that metaphor just, starts to make more sense yeah. for for me and um where I don't have so much hesitation now when I can come into a space and um and I just start and I can work really quickly actually uh and I may it may look a little um it may not look as clean or whatever as I used to think it needed to look like but I actually love that now mm. and so that's again like part of that evolution is is why did I try and make my work look so much like work in the computer? Right. Those two don't even need to, right. to be. That's one of those. That's, exa- that's a great example of one of those little rules that yeah. I was just talking about that we just set up mm-hmm. and accidentally live by sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, I'm looking at our time and I have two yeah. last, two <laughs> last questions for you. Um, first, is there anything that you want to say or any question I didn't ask you that you want to, talk about one thing i was thinking a few minutes ago that we were talking that's really been impacting me um and maybe in a in a, in a way to empathize uh with myself and so it's like two things um everyone feels i think like you're talking about you don't want that person to walk in the room and, and point out your failures. But I think what's so comforting is everyone feels like a failure. Mm-hmm. Everyone feels like they're going to be found out and discovered. And so it's all about, it's almost like if we're willing to accept that, then when we, there's no room to even compare ourselves and we can have, when we can turn that into, into empathy for others that, uh, there's just no room for that anymore. And so what it, what it frees me up, what it, what it talks to me about is that there's, there's nothing, even if it's myself, that's, that's judging me, I can, I can just say like, okay, well, I know I'm not that, and I may not know everything, but that's not going to keep me from sitting down and, and just keeping, keep practicing. Anne Lamont has the best phrase. She's like, butt in chair. She's just like, 
mm-hmm. and that's where that comes from is, is uh she has this uh beautiful podcast she's on a podcast with her son and uh and she's like yeah everyone feels dirty and everyone feels like they're a fraud you know but that we just keep doing what we do and and there's something so um so beautiful about that and mm. so so freeing and for me in my work i i just wrote that up on the wall in my studio yesterday oh that's uh, cool because oftentimes we want to we want to look out and look at everyone else's as, as if they know and have it all figured out and uh and for some reason we missed the we missed the memo we didn't get we didn't get it mm. um and i think that we can i don't know if we ever will get it but I think it's all about just committing to whatever our, whatever it is in us and just, and continuing to do that thing. Um, I think the other thing is inspiration to me has, has, um, has evolved. I, I'm not so sure it exists in the way that I, I believed it existed in the past and in the sense that I expected, I, I waited around to be inspired for, for many, many years. I would always sit and, and just wait for it to be handed down to me as if some like manna from heaven experience, mm-hmm. experience um, that it was just going to manifest in front of me. And then I would know, and it caused so much, I hate to say wasted time, but it, it kept me from, mm-hmm. from doing things. And, and I'm thankful for that time, but I'm thankful to be in a space now that And it's still it's still hard work because there's there's days that I don't feel like painting. There's days I don't feel like doing it. But I think that's when the when you really get tested and and finding out is this just a passion that you have or is this something serious that that you could do the rest of your life? Um, well, that's that might be related to my last question, which is: Do you have anything you'd want to say to others who? find themselves resonating with your story or find themselves overlapping with your story? It struck me this morning how um, I was sitting. So I've tried every part of my, my, um, daily practice now is to get up. My alarm goes off at five fifteen, and I try to sit for about 10 minutes every morning on Thursdays. I do a, I've started doing group meditation with some friends. It's just nice to be with a group of people who are also kind of pursuing that same thing within anything, um, just yeah. community. And so while I was laying there this morning, this this essence of time and really what we can't control is this time that just keeps spinning out of our our reach and our grasp. Um, but I can be thankful that uh, I may not have all the time in the world to do stuff, and I may not always do it right. But at the end of I sit in the studio for two hours and paint. I have. 30 minutes to, to play with my girls, uh, in the afternoon, or I get, you know, an hour before bedtime, instead of coming out of those times and being like, Oh, I wish I had more time or, 
man, I really feel like the day just slipped away from me. Trying to change my attitude to a, a position of gratitude and saying like, thank you. Like, I don't really know what I learned or gained from that time, but mm. I really want that to be a greater focus in, in my life and in my work that uh, I'm not always, it's not always viewed in the negative. It's, it's viewed in a, um, in a sense of just having gratitude for, for that time that I had. And I, I think there's, a, there's been a lot of struggle for me to, uh, to be okay with that, that I, I, I don't always get all the time that I feel I need or want. Yeah. Thanks Kyle. Um, so maybe that would continue to resonate, uh, with others, but I think that's something just very currently that keeps coming up in me, <laughs> resonating with me that yeah. I'm thinking about. Yeah. So I guess the last thing that I would, would touch on is this idea of setting healthy boundaries. And I can't take full credit for that. That's been something, um, my wife has really helped facilitate in me. Um, through many, many conversations, but creating boundaries in the sense that setting expectations and knowing on these days, I'm going to be in the studio from this time to this time. I'm going to be home with my family at say two o'clock on Tuesdays and I'm going to have my girls till five o'clock and then we're going to do dinner. It's not that I'm being constricted by these timetables. It's that I'm I'm actually more freed up in the time that I have allowed now to know, okay, I've got five hours in the studio. I got to get shit done. Like, I don't have time to sit around and just, you know, scroll or go out to lunch. Um, yeah. Some, some weeks it's, it's, a, it's always evolving because some weeks are really busy, some are not. And, and we have flexibility to move those um, schedules around, but, but yeah, um, and it's a, it's an ongoing thing too. Like there's no one set in stone. All right, here it is. Now we got to go by the schedule for the for the next year. But creating those, just starting simple. Like we, my wife just got this hourglass for our desk. No. Um, or sometimes I'll just literally set a timer on my phone for an hour, and I'll say, okay, I'm gonna commit to painting for this hour when this timer goes off. I'm done. I'm going to move on to something else. I'm going to be done. And it keeps my mind from just trailing on about it. Um, yeah. It so, yeah, I think gives you the freedom to, to like the mental freedom to not look at it as a, as a self judgment that you're quitting, but as a, as a, yeah. a compliment to yourself that, that you're uh, being disciplined and sticking with your program. I think yeah, one of the most over overlooked parts of creativity is, the way the same way that you need laws for freedom i think you need constraints for your creativity and and you show me like a chaotic people sometimes celebrate chaos and creativity and i think that's i think that's completely wrong it's dangerous um i think there's bursts of chaotic like you can be chaotic in in bursts but to suggest that the whole thing is just this chaotic expression yeah. of who knows what's going to happen without constraints. Right. Maybe that works for a little while. And then, but I think in the end, the work suffers. And I think the person who's doing the work is suffers running himself into the ground. Of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's this idea of, of cosmos and chaos and we have to be willing 
to um, create more from a place of the cosmos and ourselves um, and thereby like having having boundaries having I think it, it, it adds intentionality to our work it adds a, a certain layer of depth uh, that I'm always hoping to bring into my work but if everything is just like happening the spur of the moment and you know just like off the cuff well mm -hmm. you may get lucky and you may create something genius but it's um who who are you to know if if you're not taking time and having some reflection well time. and i think too for me that that i fall victim to this myth sometimes that you have to be consuming a lot of creative stuff to be able to produce creative stuff and every now and again oh, I, I really <laughs> like i beat myself up that i'm not more like consumptive of creative things but but i go and i try and do that and i just want to shoot myself and i just want to barf and and i i don't enjoy it and what i think and i hope that i'm finding is that if i can have really focused uh moments of like creative intake when i need them that mm -hmm. that that produces quite a bit when the rest of the my time is structured in a way that allows for me to get input in subconscious ways from different things that um, I wasn't expecting in, in, in other areas. And to the degree that I even read an article recently where someone was like, you have to be passionate about something that's not design related to do good design. And they were talking about how they're super passionate about cars. So they study future car designs and they, and they take a lot of inspiration from that. And I'm like, that's cool and all, man, but I just think that sucks. Like, I don't want to, I can't do it. I, I wish I could do it because it sounds so nice to be able to have a passion. Mm. But I find myself, I don't know, when I, I, I don't like something enough to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or it doesn't even have to, I mean, you, you just don't, you don't have to make a rule about it. Yeah. Like when is, why is sometimes a job is good to just be a job? Yeah. And you can, um, the adage that like you you know you like have to love what you do or be passionate about what you do just so many catchphrases and and buzzwords that get thrown around and especially around the creative field that yeah to me it just it's like well if i'm only operating on a feeling and just doing this because you know it's but love is also just not a feeling i mean there's so many layers to that that that, that i think is wrong with that saying it's harmful and very misleading to, to, to younger people. Yeah. But, but, uh, there's a lot of things that I do about my job that I don't enjoy. Right. I mean, I don't love it any less. Well, and I wish someone would have told me, uh, there was nobody that could have told me in my life, but, but I wish I didn't have to just encounter this, that every creative project I've ever done has a, has a, a time in the middle that I hate it. It doesn't matter what it is. There's always a period of time in the middle that I don't like it. I don't yeah. like the process. I don't feel like it's going well. And I wish someone would have told me like, dude, that's part of it. That's cool. No big deal. Cause now I can just roll through that and I can say to myself, Oh, that's where I'm at. I'm in that part of the mm -hmm. process. That's just, bleh. Yeah. I don't like it. It feels <laughs> ugly. It doesn't feel like I have any passion behind it. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately about ways. I, I feel a pretty big disconnect between what I do during the day and actually making the world a better place because I've chosen to work 
so my my day job agency is called Moon March, and I've chosen to focus exclusively on companies that are making the world a better place. Um, and it could be causes. It could be I had I had a um, gubernatorial candidate this year, and it could be a for profit. It could be a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that because I got tired of selling shoes and smartphones and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but I even find myself feeling like that still doesn't scratch the itch. And I and I'm curious where that's going to lead for myself because as a creative professional i i need to create i want to create and for me creating isn't just design it's also like starting projects and launching businesses and there's a lot there's a lot of breadth to that idea of creating but i still just don't feel like very many of us in the creative world are actually making the world a better place i think we talk about doing it Mm -hmm. and i think we pat ourselves on the back that we are doing it because we create projects that supposedly build empathy but that I think is also an illusion for justice that because we feel connected to someone doesn't mean we actually are. So, mm-hmm. um, so I'd be, I'm curious, like what, if, if you thought about that at all, or, or if, if doing public art, which is arguably a little bit could be perceived, I guess, as more good for like the public good, the common good, or if Maybe. you wrestle with that or not. I mean, it seems all people want to do these days is fucking stand in front of a wall and take a picture for That's Instagram. True. That has really become a big aggravation. It's just like a thorn in my side about what I'm doing right now and really? what it's becoming, what it's turning into. Yeah. And I guess I can't fault these companies for it because it, it all plays back into like awareness and, and more marketing for them. But Oh, the you're, you're pissed the, that the they know that they're, they know that they're, they're doing right. it for that reason. Exactly. When uh, it becomes the buzzword and it becomes we want an Instagrammable wall oh, as a catch, the catchphrase. Uh, right. And oh, that's a, that it's a really hard thing. No, it's a hard thing to stomach because it's um, it just points out, it shines a light on the problem right now. Uh, or what I perceive to be the problem is that uh, it's, it's just consumer driven. It's... Um, and it's hyper consumeristic. Uh, people, patrons have been commissioning art for as long as there's been people with money, right? But uh, there just doesn't stand. There just doesn't. Uh, there seems to be a degrading of the intent and um, the purpose behind why some people are creating now. Uh, if it's only to be uh, used as a backdrop, then we should call it what it is. And to me, it's almost just seems like a, a piece of decoration, uh, something that you just hang on the wall and it looks pretty because it matches your drapes or it matches your rug. Uh, that to me, I have a really hard time stomaching that is art. Um, and so what is art? I, it's, that's a, that's a very elusive question and it's, dangerous to try and answer that that's a whole other 10 part podcast (laughs) well thanks for sharing man and thanks for taking time to talk to me yeah thank you for uh listening and asking great questions uh, it's an honor to hear your story it really is thank you